All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. Uh, today, I mean, we, we have to cover this revelation that came out of the White House that uh, constitutional amendments are no longer absolute. And we're also going to look at the six different items that Joe Biden says that he's going to implement through executive order, which will, uh, which he says is completely within his authority and within the, you know, boundaries of the second amendment to quote, save lives, right? So once again, we, we have a politician saying that they're going to implement something in order to save lives. What I would love to see is if, if he's going to have any metric whatsoever in order to determine whether or not he's doing will actually save lives, but something tells me that's not going to happen. But let's look at president Biden's initial statement here. So <clears throat> there's a statement put out by the white house reiterating his call for Congress to pass legislation to reduce gun violence. I mean, at the very minimum, I'm thrilled that he still thinks we need a Congress. Based off of some of his comments, you were starting to wonder if whether or not he thought it was even necessary anymore to go through, oh, I don't know, the legislative process in order to write laws, or if he just thought he was going to do it with a pen. He said Congress should consider those or uh, should close loopholes, uh, you know, and go further, including by closing boyfriend and stocking loopholes that currently allow people found by the courts to ban abusers to possess firearms. He said he wants to ban assault weapons, which we're going we're gonna to get into the numbers here pretty quickly, and we're going to find out, is, is that really going to actually achieve this sort of results? Is that going to save lives to, quote, ban assault, uh, assault weapons? High-capacity magazines. This one I love, repealing gun manufacturers' immunity from liability. Um, it, <laughs> We'll go into this in more detail, but I want you, when he talks about this, he says that essentially a gun manufacturer is the only manufacturer of a product that can't be sued or can't be held liable uh, for their product. That's garbage. Just so you know, if you, go to, if you go buy a Colt or a Springfield or whatever else, you go buy a firearm, you go buy a Glock, right? And you shoot it and it blows up in your face due to a manufacturing design flaw, you can sue the company. What he wants you to be able to do is that if someone buys a gun and then goes and uses it for a bad purpose, he wants you to be able to sue the gun manufacturer, right? So I want you to imagine everyone out there right now speeding in a Chevy or, or drunk driving in a Ford, right? You do something like that, he, the equivalent would be you could sue Ford because after all, they produced you the car. My gosh, if they hadn't sold you the car, you wouldn't be out driving drunk. Right? That, that's the sort of absurdity. And again, we talked about this in a previous podcast. The whole effort behind that is that if, if they can't actually affect the demand, because it turns out free people like to be able to defend themselves, then they're going to try to shut down the supply. 
Because you know, you know as soon as they say that you can sue a gun manufacturer, not because they did anything wrong with respect to the manufacturing of the firearm, not because they did anything wrong with respect to who they sold the firearm to, but because a firearm with their brand was used in a violent act, I want you to imagine all the anti-Second Amendment groups that would line up to sue gun manufacturers and essentially run them out of business. So that's what they're really trying to do. All right, so just keep that in mind. He also talks about, um, there's an evidence-based community violence interventions. Well, I'll tell you what, we've got actually got a report from a, a think tank that is not a right-wing think tank that, that talks about what are some of the ways that you actually reduce violence. Because if he actually wants to use evidence-based community uh, violence interventions, well then great, we have some suggestions for them that I don't think they're going to like. And then, of course, they also want a national red flag law. So, again, the way red flag lies are, are, are uh, sold is either as suicide prevention or this is just a case where when somebody uh, demonstrates dangerous behavior, law enforcement can now come in and, and confiscate their weapons for, or their firearms for a particular period of time. What, it, what is ridiculous about these laws is that essentially they're not just a violation of your Second Amendment rights, they're potentially a violation of your Third Amendment rights, or excuse me, your Fourth Amendment rights, your Fifth Amendment rights, and even maybe even your First Amendment rights, if you want to look at it. Because all it takes is someone fostering a complaint against you and then going to like a local magistrate or the police. In Virginia, you don't even need a judge, right? A local magistrate can issue the order. Now, what's interesting about this is that they're putting magistrates in a position to where if they don't issue the order to confiscate the gun and somebody does something bad, well, now it's on the magistrate. So now they have a positive incentive to issue an order to take someone's firearms, even if they haven't done anything wrong. It's not like you're afforded due process of law on this. Um, you know, your neighbor says you're a dangerous person or you've made threats against them. Magistrate issues a, um, uh, a protective order or, or a red flag law order. They come in, they confiscate whatever firearms they think you have because it's not as if, you know, there's a gun registry. So they take your firearms and then they leave. And then you've got to go back and argue for why you should get them back. All right. So hopefully everyone sees the, the, the problem with that kind of approach to denying someone an essential civil liberty without essentially a court case, your uh, ability to, to face your accuser, a jury of your peers, nothing. We're just going to come in and take it away. So he wants to implement that on the national side, and then he wants model legislation for each state, right? But he understands that most of what he's talking about there actually has to go through a legislative pro uh, process in Congress, right? So he said that they're not going to wait to save lives. They've got six things they're going to do by executive orders. So let's take a look at it. He goes, the Justice Department within 30 days will issue a proposed rule to help stop the proliferation of ghost guns. What's a ghost gun? Essentially, it's a kit, right? You, you can order a kit in order to, to build your own firearm, right? And a lot of these kits have been associated with things like, you know, flintlock muskets. I mean, they, yeah, you can get them for a wide variety of things, but his whole, his whole thing here is that this is a huge problem with respect to crime, except that it isn't. All right. I, I'm sorry, but if, if you go and you look at the violence crime statistics, which we're going to be going over in detail later on in this episode, we do not have a rash of people going out, getting gun kits, manufacturing a gun, and then going out and committing violent crimes, right? That, that's just, it's not happening. Right, that's not to say it never happens, but it, that is not how most people that commit a violent act with a gun actually get their firearm. All right, so that's problematic. And he said the Justice Department within 60 days will issue a proposed rule to make clear when a device marketed as a stabilizing brace effectively turns a pistol into a short-billed rifle subject to the requirements of the National Firearms Act. First of all, this rule within the National Firearms Act is ridiculous, right? A, a common use case for this is things like an AR pistol. So it's like a shorter barrel and you have a buttstock on it. 
or again, a stabilizing brace. What it is, is it was a stupid law in the first place. And so there's different mechanisms you can use to take a, a pistol, right? And, and basically better stabilize it, right? You can bring it up your shoulder and fire it as opposed to how you typically fire a pistol. So he's going to go, he's going to issue a proposed rule to make clear that you can't do that, right? And it's, it's just absurd. Again, it was a dumb rule in the first place. It's a dumb rule now. Uh, Justice Department within 60 days will publish model red flag legislation for states. Okay, yeah, great. That's what I want is the federal government coming in and telling me what their model red flag legislation should look like. Here, simple question. Does their model red flag legislation violate the second, fourth, fifth, and potentially the first amendment? I mean, I'm, I'm curious. And the reason I say first amendment is because now if you say something on Facebook, are they going to use that as evidence to take your firearms away? Even if you, you said something and in, in, you, you shared a meme right? That was a joke or something like that. Now, again, you should always be careful with what you say. Um, and obviously certain humor may be inappropriate, but is it now going to be used as justification to confiscate your firearms, even though you have no criminal background and you've never done anything to hurt anyone? Yeah, probably. So that's the sort of model red flag legislation we can expect from the Biden administration. And then they've also got the administration is investing in evidence-based community violence interventions. Here's what I find so interesting about this, right? They say community violence interventions are proven strategies for reducing gun violence in urban areas through tools other than incarceration. All right. So essentially what we're talking about here is, you know, again, they, they don't want to combat gun violence by saying, hey, you're someone that committed a crime with a gun. So we're going to punish you for that. No, no, no. We don't, we don't want that sort of mean spirited incarceration for people that actually use guns in a violent manner. We're going to we're going to invest, you know, billions of dollars in, in these these crime prevention. Fine. You, you want to do that? OK. But one of the things you're going to find out is that if you actually want to reduce crime in some of these areas, what you're going to need is more police. So, so we'll see if these evidence-based strategies actually come back with something that would actually work in high crime areas, but I'm not holding my breath and neither should you. Um, and then let me see, the Justice Department will issue an annual report on firearms trafficking. Here's what I find interesting about this. First of all, <laughs> Aren't they already doing this? Like, are, are, do we not do we not already have somebody that's actually, um, you know, looking at arms trafficking? And and now are we going to do something where, where we're categorizing arms trafficking to where we're, we're not just including illegal transactions but legal transactions? Like that that's one of the big things that we're we're curious about here. And what's interesting is that he has in here. But there's good reason to believe that firearms trafficking channels have changed since 2000. For example, due to the emergence of online sales and proliferation of ghost guns. Okay, so a second ago, he was talking about how ghost guns are a real problem. Now he's going to fund a study in order to actually look at ghost guns, I guess, to determine if it's an actual problem, right? So, so which is it? Have, have you already determined and ascertained that it's a real problem requiring this sort of executive action? Or are you going to do a study to do that? Well, it looks like they're going to do both. And then uh, finally, the president will nominate David Chipman to serve as director of uh, Bureau of Alco Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And, and again, this is, Chipman is not exactly, a, uh, not exactly a friend of the Second Amendment. So these are the six things that the president is going to do in order to, quote, save lives. Let me go ahead and make a prediction. Uh, this is not going to save anybody's life. This is, this is really not going to do anything. Um, I mean, maybe it'll lead to more red flag laws in states, but a lot of states have already passed those. Maybe they'll modify them uh, to be in line with whatever the federal recommendation is, but it, 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 that's not going to prevent gun violence. None of this garbage is going to prevent gun violence, right? So they're, they're going to use this to, in order to make it look like they're doing something, right? None, none of which will actually help, and all of it, it just, is more designed to punish law-abiding citizens than it is criminals, 
right? But it, I, I don't think this is going to save anybody's life. And just for once, here's what I'd love. When one of these politicians step forward and say, this is going to save lives, or this is going to, you know, whatever. Great. Give me a metric. What, what's a measurable number we can go with? You're going to implement this policy. You say you're going to implement it because it's going to save lives. Okay, great. When we look at the numbers two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, are we going to see any discernible change? And will we be able to link that discernible change back to your policy? If the answer is no, well, then why don't we sunset the policy? Why don't we just say, okay, hey, look, you tried. It didn't work. Now we know it doesn't work, so don't do it anymore. You think they'll do that? No, of course they won't do that. They never do that, right? Ray, Reagan said it best when he essentially said that the closest thing that we'll see to eternal life on this planet is a government program, right? They, they have already convinced themselves that this is what needs to be done in addition to all the legislation that the Biden administration is suggesting. They've already convinced themselves this is the way to do it. So it doesn't matter what sort of data comes back suggesting that, yeah, none of this really worked and, and all you did was infringe on, on the rights of law-abiding people. They won't come back and be like, oh my gosh, our bad. Let's repeal this. No, they'll expand it. They'll say, well, we didn't have enough power. We didn't have, uh, have enough money to actually implement this. Or the reason why it didn't work is because we don't have universal gun registration, right? They'll come up with a thousand reasons on why their plan doesn't work and why the only solution that they'll accept includes them having more money, more power, more authority at the expense of your liberty. That's what they'll do. Let me just predict it now. And we can look back in five years, four years, and we'll see if I'm wrong, right? I'm making an objective statement. This isn't going to work, and they're going to suggest that in order for their plan to work, they need more power, more authority, and you need less freedom. All right, let's see what they do. All right, so now that we know what the Biden administration wants to do, and, and I do find it, think it was interesting when he said that, you know, a constitutional amendment is not absolute. Oh, okay, well, in the sense that an amendment can be changed, right, we can go through a legislative process, we can go through the process that we have within the Constitution to amend the Constitution. Yeah, it's not absolute in that sense. But typically when a law is on the books and it's fairly easy to understand, it's relatively absolute or as absolute as we can get within this, this lifetime with respect to law, all right? And, and I would suggest to the president that if, if he wants to go around saying that, well, a constitutional amendment is not absolute, okay, great, then neither is your executive order. And, and which other laws would you like me to treat as not being absolute? Because I can play this game all day long. And, and what I find interesting is that when it comes to a law or a restriction on us, on you, the people, they think those are very much absolute. When it comes to restrictions on government authority, that's the one where all of a sudden they see a lot of gray area. And that's the difference. The Constitution, the Second Amendment, it is not there to tell you what your rights are. It is there to tell the government what their limitations are, the boundaries with which they're allowed to operate, both from a legislative perspective from an executive branch perspective, from a judicial perspective. But no, in this case, he wants to say a constitutional amendment, which has been on the books pretty much since the founding of our, of our country, right, 1780s. That's not absolute. But his, his random executive orders, well, by golly, we all better obey those. And that's what I find disturbing. It's this idea that any restriction on their power or authority, they feel free to ignore or gloss over, or suggest that there's some wiggle room. But when it comes to restrictions on us, oh no, no, they want those enforced. They want those imposed. And you would better obey them. Yeah, okay, we'll see how that works out for you, Joe. All right, let's go in it. Now that we've established what Joe Biden wants to do, let, I'm gonna, we're gonna go through several steps here. 
We're going to talk about gun ownership in America. What does gun violence in America look like? What does it look like overseas? So let's start off with what does gun ownership look like in America? Well, according to Gallup, right? According to Gallup, 44% of households own a gun, right? And, and according to the small arms survey, there's about 393 million guns owned by U.S. citizens, right? That's what gun ownership in America looks like. Now, again, if you want to go buy a gun, typically what you have to do is you go to a, a licensed dealer. You have to go through a federal background check, usually a state background check. Um, if it takes longer than three days to adjudicate it, they, you, you can get the firearm. And, and again, some people look at this and say, well, why shouldn't we ex expand that? Or why Well, because we don't want the government playing tricks, right? There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to get a background check back in three days, especially when the system is automated. And it generally takes like a matter of minutes, not hours even, in order to do a background check, All right? But if you have a situation where... Um, you, you give the government unlimited time, you create an environment where now uh, an administration like Biden's could come in and say, hey, look, we want you to take 20 days for every background check. And so it, we, we put that in place as a check against government power to where they say, okay, you can do the background check, but you don't get to, you don't get to you know, lengthen it for, for weeks and all and essentially de facto infringe on someone's Second Amendment rights because you were unwilling to do the job in a timely fashion, right? That's why we have those limits on there, All right? But that's the typical process. And when they talk about things like the gun show loophole, if you're a licensed dealer at a gun show, you still got to do a background check, right? The, the whole loophole idea is the idea that if I want to give a gun to my kid, right, I don't have to go through a, we don't have to go through a background check in order to do that transaction, right? Private person-to-person -person sales, right? You don't need you don't need to go through a background check in order to do that transaction, all right, in, in most cases. Um, and again, the, the problem with that is that the only way that you can actually stop that from happening is that if you wanted universal gun registration. And we all know that's what they're really after. So that's why they keep talking about these loopholes. But again, they, think about it. 393 million guns owned by citizens of the United States. To give you an idea, that's more guns than citizens in the United States. And I'm sure European countries and the UK look at that and just, oh my gosh, they're awestruck. I can't believe how many guns are in the United States. Guess what? I don't care, right? I don't care what they think about it. I really don't. I especially don't care what countries that used to be colonial powers that went in, took over countries in, in Asia, in, in, uh, in South America, in Africa, that they went in there and then banned the ability of the local citizens to be able to own guns because they didn't want them to be able to rise up against their colonial rulers. So I'm not taking any lectures from people that had large colonial empires or have specifically used gun control laws within their own country in order to infringe upon the civil liberties of minorities like what happened here in the United States under Jim Crow laws. Okay, so again, I don't care that they're concerned with the number of guns that U.S. citizens own. Wait, we are a free society. Free people have a right to be able to defend themselves. In order to effectively do that, owning a gun is certainly a good way in order to make sure that happens. Right, and no, we're not going to disarm ourselves because it makes politicians and governments feel scared. We're not doing that, sorry. So, Gun ownership in the United States is a good thing. I certainly encourage anybody that is interested in owning a firearm to read up, do the study, buy your firearm, take the proper training. It's not that difficult to do, all right? But it is a good way to ensure that you can defend yourself. All right, so that's what gun ownership looks like, right? 44%, almost half the country's households have firearms, right? Probably more if in some of these high crime cities, they didn't have such horrible restrictions on it. All right, so let's talk about what gun violence looks like in America. So the, the big thing, the number that you always see thrown around is like 33,000 deaths a year, right? And, and I'm, I'm going to take this from 538, 
which is another, they do a lot of research. Think tank is, is probably a good way to describe them in some ways. You see them doing a lot of the numbers with respect to um, political races and candidates and things like that, but they've developed a reputation for doing pretty good research. Okay? They're not always right, nobody is, but they did a breakdown of it. They said, okay, 33,599 gun deaths in a year. 21,058, so nearly 60% of those were suicides. Right, so that's someone using a firearm for a suicide. And that's, that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. But I'm hoping we can all admit that's a lot different than someone using a firearm in an act of violence against another person, another innocent person. Then they focus in on the 12,000 gun deaths a year. Right? It's not quite 12,000, it's almost 12,000. 12,000 gun deaths a year are homicides. Now, here's what's interesting about that. A homicide, most people think homicide, they think murder. No, that's, that's, murder falls within a homicide, but homicide is actually a broader definition. Here's what's interesting. 4,000 of those cases are actually fall under a bracket that would be considered like legitimate shootings. So for instance, somebody shooting at the police, the police shoot back and shoot somebody, that's considered a homicide, but it's also considered a justifiable shooting provided all the procedures were followed. Somebody breaks into your house to, you know, beat you, rob you, kidnap your kid, rape you. You shoot and kill them. That's also considered a justifiable homicide, right? So out of those 12,000 gun deaths a year, which are homicides, 8,000 of them are murders, all right? There's another like 546 accidental, 269 undetermined, but about 8,000 are murders. And when you actually break down those numbers even more, what you find is that they're committed by an incredibly small fraction of not just the population, they're, they're, uh, but the criminal population. And, and a lot of it has to do with inner city gun violence, not all of gang violence, not all of it, but a lot of it has to do with inner city gang violence. All right. So that's what gun violence in America looks like, right? So when you hear that 33,000 number, just remember that what we're, what we're really talking about, right? And not to say that it's not all important, but 8,000 murders a year as a result of guns. Okay. So presumably that's what we're trying to stop, right? We're trying to stop those 8,000 murders um, and, and any other sort of criminal activity where someone uses a, a firearm to intimidate someone um, or whatnot. So where do criminals get their guns? Well, it turns out about 0.8%, not 8%, 0.8% that we know of purchased their gun at a gun show, right? And a study out of Pittsburgh showed that nearly 80% of criminals acquired their guns illegally. That means many of them were stolen, right? They, they were either stolen from somebody or they were purchased illegally in some other manner right? Buying it, you know, in a back alley somewhere, All right? So like close to 80% of firearms are, are used by people that acquired their firearms illegally. That's how criminals get their guns. They're not going to, they're not buying kits and making them. They're not going to gun shows and, you know, buying, walking out with arms full of weapons, right? They're getting them illegally. All right. So that leads us to our next question. All right. So now we know how many Americans own guns, we know how criminals tend to get their guns. We know what gun violence looks like, about 8,000 murders a year in the United States committed with firearms. So let's ask the question. Um, does less guns, does more restrictive gun control laws and do more gun-free zones make us safer, right? Because that, that is the contention, right? That, that, is what, that is what essentially Joe Biden and the left is saying with respect to the Second Amendment is that, okay, fine, even if they accept our numbers, 8,000 murders a year committed by guns, you know, one is too many, and so we have to have these restrictions in place in order to make sure that we can, we can lower that number and we can make our, our citizens safer. 
Okay, great. Let's look at gun-free zones. Turns out, according to the Gun Prevention Research Center, 94% of mass shootings, and mass shootings are usually described as, as four more uh, deaths involved in a shooting, take place, guess where? Gun-free zones. Yeah, it, it turns out that if you're the sort of sick individual that wants to go and kill a lot of innocent people, they tend to target areas where they know nobody else is going to have a firearm. Right? That's why you don't see a lot of mass shootings at, I don't know, gun shows. They happen in gun-free zones. Now, if, if 94% was used in any other statistic here, I think we'd be able to say, well, that seems fairly overwhelming that this particular approach, namely gun-free zones, is, is maybe it's not achieving our objective. Now, of course, the left will say, well, gosh, the, the number would be so much higher if we didn't have these gun-free zones. Would it? Would it? Can you point to something that actually demonstrates that? I, I understand that's your contention. I understand that's what you think would happen. I understand you honestly believe that when a, when a criminal bent on mass murder sees a gun-free zone sign, they get back in their car and they, they drive somewhere else. But is that what's really happening? Because 94% of, of, of mass shootings taking place in gun-free zones is a pretty damning statistic. It suggests to me that maybe gun-free zones are not deterring people that want to commit an act of mass murder. I, I don't think that's an unreasonable conclusion. Now, again, if you want to provide additional data, if the left wants to provide additional data on why I know they are actually a positive thing and why they do achieve good results, great. I, I'd, be, I'd be willing to hear them out. But I would like to see data. I, I don't want to see them yelling at me, screaming at me, crying at me. I, I would just like to see data. Because if you're really concerned about what's going to stop violence, and not just gun violence, but any violence against an innocent person. Well, then theoretically, you'd be concerned enough to actually look at the data and, and apply critical thought to it in order to come to a conclusion that might actually achieve your end results. Unless, of course, this isn't really about that. Unless this is more about you just feeling better about pretending to do something. All right. And we, we hear the same thing with, with uh, assault rifles, right? Assault rifles, we got to ban assault weapons. And they're, they're always talking about assault rifles or high-capacity magazines. So in 2019, there were 364 murders with a rifle. Okay, and that's a broad category. That's not AR-15s. That's a broad category. If it was a rifle, 364 murders, okay? Now let's compare that with thing. There were 600 murders with fists, hands, and feet in the same year. 600 murders with fists, hands, and feet. There was 397 with clubs, hammers, and bats. There was 1,476 murders with knives. And then if we, if we just want to broaden the category and also include some accidental deaths, there were more deaths of people falling out of bed, 650, than they were with rifles. And, and here's a very important statistic for Joe Biden. I think this is one he would be genuinely concerned of. There was 1,307 deaths, accidental deaths, from falling downstairs. So Joe, if you want to get on something that I think presents a significant threat to your person, more research on, on stair safety might actually do more to save lives than the garbage that he's actually putting forth with respect to the Second Amendment. All right, so as we look at, as we look at you know, does, does less guns, does gun reasons actually present a cure? It, it doesn't appear to. It doesn't appear to. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like AR-15s is what I would target if I was really serious about reducing violence and specifically gun violence. All right? and, and then the argument that we always hear is mo the moment we point out that they're targeting all the things that aren't actually going to produce the results they claim to care about, they always go to what? 
What about the United Kingdom and Australia? Okay, let's talk about the United Kingdom and Australia. Again, from 538. And, the, and what's interesting about the 538 group is that when they conducted these studies, they conducted them with a very friendly attitude toward gun control. And so they looked at gun buyback programs. They looked at stricter gun restrictions. And they even came back and said, look, the data doesn't support the conclusion. And, and that didn't mean that they didn't want gun control anymore. They were just saying that, look, these programs don't work. All right, they, they honestly looked at data and came back with some pretty good analysis. So let's look at this. In parts of Great Britain, there isn't, this is directly from them, there isn't strong evidence that the ban and buyback saved lives. After the new gun law was implemented in 1996, the number of crimes involving guns in England and Wales kept rising through the 1990s, peaking in 2003 and 2004 before subsiding. The post-2004 drop is hard to credit to the buyback and possibly occurred because of an increase in the number of police officers. It's possible that any effect of the ban, positive or negative, was swamped by other factors affecting gun violence. So let me get, so again, the law went into effect in 1996 and gun crime, gun crimes, not just crime and, and I mean, if you want to actually expand it to all crime, there was a problem in England, right? But specifically gun crimes continue to increase all the way till 2004. So what are you, what are you saying? That the, the plan in 1996 took eight years to, to properly be implemented? I doubt it. And I think it's interesting to say that the post-2004 drop is hard to credit to the buyback and possibly occurred because of an increase in the number of police officers. Well, there you go, Joe. If you wanted some evidence-based violence intervention programs, increasing the number of police officers is, is probably more likely to get you what you want than criminalizing law-abiding gun owners. Just an idea. Again, this is not coming from the NRA. This is coming from 538. Okay, maybe they'll concede the point on the UK, but what about Australia? Everyone know that homicides declined in Australia after they implemented more strict gun bans. So I'm going to read again directly from the study. In Australia, homicides declined after the ban and buyback. This is important. But homicides had already been falling according to a 2003 analysis by criminolo criminologist Peter Reuter and Jenny Moses. The share of robberies and suicides committed with a gun declined Oh, excuse me, their share of robberies and suicides committed with a gun declined, but the researchers found that the overall data was a uh, uh, overall data was consistent with the story of substitution, meaning people used other weapons for homicide and suicide. Through 1998, the number of suicides normalized by age remained nearly constant, and the share of suicides using a firearm fell by the same rate it had been falling before the gun ban. Armed robberies increased through 2000, though fewer were conducted with a gun, causing criminals and potential suicide victims to reach for a different weapon could be a, this is what they say, could be a partial victory for a buyback program. Most alternative weapons are less lethal than a firearm, but if that happened, listen to this, but if that happened, it didn't appear to change the overall trend for violent deaths. So, once again, the, the very policies that we as Americans are all supposed to look to overseas as having achieved the sort of results the Democrats are after here, that the left is after in the United States, didn't achieve those results. And th this is one of the most, you know, th there's a reason why I think it was, I think it was Mark Twain that said there's, you know, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. 
Thomas Sowell talks a lot about this as well, is that you'll see a lot of people saying that, well, this was the number of, of murders or, or acts of gun violence in Australia. Then they passed the ban and then it went down. No. If you only start recording at the year that they passed the ban, then yes, you can say that, okay, the ban passed and then the numbers went down. But that's what we call a causation correlation fallacy. You're saying that because they passed the ban, the numbers went down. Well, the only way that you can really look at that is that if you start to look at the numbers before the ban was passed. And what do you find? You find a trend that remained consistent before the ban and after the ban. Right? They're making a causation correlation fallacy by cooking the books with the statistics that they look at. And even when they talk about things like red flag laws, like we said, almost two-thirds of gun violence deaths in the United States are a result of suicide. Well, they got rid of the guns over in Australia. It turns out it didn't really affect the suicide rate. What it did cause is a lot of people to have to hand in their firearms. Now, here's my question for you. Because simply because gun violence goes down doesn't mean violence overall went down. The biggest difference between a gun versus a knife is not just the lethality of the individual weapon. It also has to do with the equalizing effect of the weapon. All right, so if a 250-pound man comes across a 125-pound woman and he's got a gun and she's got a gun, they both got guns. If he's got a gun and she doesn't, she's out of luck. If he's got a knife and she, and she has a knife, she's out of luck in most cases. But if he's got a knife and she's got a gun, well, now who's in the better situation? And the other question I would like to ask, very simple one, because I, I've asked this question before where people have said, well, I, you know, we, we would be safer if they didn't own firearms. I said, okay, I have a question. If you were in a situation where someone was trying to break into your house in order to commit an act of violence against you, in that situation, would you want a gun or not? And it's, and it's funny because I have, I have yet to have one person tell me absolutely not without even thinking about it. They usually think for a second. And then a lot of times you can see them understanding that their argument's about to fall apart if they don't say no. And since it's a hypothetical, they say, okay, well, no, no, I still wouldn't want a gun. Okay, great. You still wouldn't want a gun. And guess what? You have a right to not have a gun in that situation. My question is, is what gives you a right to tell everybody else that they can't have a gun in that situation? And are you going to assume personal responsibility after you have deprived the other person that might want a gun in that situation from having one? Are you going to take responsibility for what happens to them? Well, of course they're not. Because when we actually start to put this into individual situations and we actually start to put people in the scenarios where they might want a firearm, now all of a sudden it's not so, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to be glib. And even if they do want to be glib with their own life, it becomes a little bit harder to do with others. And so they usually come back, well, well I don't want anyone, I don't want the bad guy to have it either. Oh, well, well, that's great. That's great. I don't, well, gosh, let's just outlaw murder and robbery. Oh, wait, we already have. This is not about what the ideal situation would be in a perfect world. This is about dealing with reality as we find it and what can the law actually achieve. And what we found, no matter where we go, is that the law ultimately cannot prevent a person or cannot guarantee the prevention of a person from committing a violent act regardless of what they use to commit the violent act. But what the law does a very good job of doing is preventing law-abiding citizens from having the means to be able to defend themselves against such persons. And that's the real trade-off that we're talking about here. This is not about an, an ideal world where, gosh, we just wish that it was all you know, lollipops and puppy dogs and nobody hurt anybody. People hurt other people. The question is, is that 
are you going to be equipped to be able to defend yourself? Because it turns out the average response time for a police officer in the United States, 18 minutes. 18 minutes. I live in a rural area. I guarantee you it is not 18 minutes for most of this county. And that's not because the police are doing a bad job. It's because they can't be everywhere. And that's 18 minutes when somebody actually calls. What happens when somebody's in a rural area and they sneak in and you don't know they're there until it's too late? And this, this leads me into the, the final point I want to make here. Because we always hear this, and, and I will, I'll be honest here. Advocates of the Second Amendment don't always do a good job of defending the Second Amendment in a way that we should. Because the, the philosophical component is important here, but it is not the totality of our argument. Now, I want you to look at what the, the presupposition is for the anti-gun movement. The presupposition is guns are the problem. If we restrict the amount of guns that are available to citizens, then we will reduce violence. Right? That's, that's the premise of their argument. Guns are the problem. Reduce the guns. You'll get less crime. Or you, you'll at least get less crime committed with guns. And what we see in places that have implemented the sort of policies that they want to see here is that that does not appear to add up. That does not appear to happen. All right, but the overall goal, as, as President Biden pointed out, is to what? Save lives. Okay, great. So if your premise is a reduction in guns in the hands of citizens saves lives, then it's fair for me to say, you know what? I also want to save lives. I am every bit as committed to saving innocent human life as Joe Biden is, regardless of what the left might want to think of us. <clears throat> I'm every bit as committed to saving lives. So let's consider a different side of this topic. Let's consider guns used for self-defense, because this is something that doesn't come up a lot. All right, now, according to the Center for Disease Control, there was analysis of a Center of Disease Control study, and they found that almost every major survey on defensive gun use said that from 500,000 to 3 million times per year, a citizen used a firearm to prevent a crime from taking place. Now, a lot of people will come back and be like, well, those are bogus numbers because only so many people were shot or only so many people died. Okay, just like you don't need to actually shoot someone to use a gun to steal from them or rob them or rape them, you don't need to use a gun to shoot someone or to kill someone to prevent them from robbing, stealing, raping, beating. Sometimes the mere presence of the firearm is sufficient to dissuade the bad guy that they probably don't want to mess around with you. And when you take into account all of those, you get up to five, we'll use the 500,000 number. It goes all the way up to 3 million with certain surveys, but let's go with the 500,000 number. So 8,000 homicides, 8,000 gun deaths is what you are trying to prevent with stricter gun laws. Now, here's something we know about criminals, right? And I think I can say this fairly empirically and rationally. <clears throat> criminals are not known for their willingness to obey the law. So right off the bat, you have to assume that if you pass a gun law, law-abiding citizens, people that generally are concerned about not violating the law, are more likely to abide by the guidelines than, say, the people that want to murder other people, right? I think that's a fair assumption, and I think we can empirically justify that assumption. So right off the bat, the anti-gun policies, by their very design, will have a greater impact on those people that are concerned about following the law than those people who are not. All right. So what do you do with the 500,000 people or, or the people that a firearm was used 500,000 times in order to prevent a murder, 
a robbery, an assault, a rape, a burglary, or robbery. What, what, do you, what do you do with that? How many, are we going to see an increase in those numbers? Are we going to see more lives lost by somebody that could have had the means to defend themselves? Are we going to see more people raped because they were denied the ability to be able to defend themselves? What about, the, do those lives matter too? Are we interested in saving those lives as well? Or is the government not interested in people saving their own lives? They're only interested in it if they're the ones that can take responsibility for it. Because they sure as hell don't seem to want to take responsibility for what happens when you deprive a law-abiding citizen of the means to defend themselves. They don't want to assume any responsibility for that, even though absent their gun laws, absent their intervention, you might have been able to prevent yourself from being a victim. So if you really want to save lives, you can't just look at the 8,000 murders. You can't just look at the 20,000 suicides. You also have to look at the 500,000 instances where a private citizen used a firearm in order to defend themselves, and you have to be able to look beyond what your stated objectives are in order to determine what could possibly be unintended consequences. And what I see is a situation where hundreds of thousands of people that never became victims could potentially become a victim now. And if they're not willing to take that into consideration, then I would suggest to you, they're not as interested in saving lives as they suggest that they are. Because when we look at, when we look at that, when we look at some other statistics, first of all, 50, this is according to the uh, uh, Justice Department, 57% of felons that were surveyed said they were more afraid of a citizen with a gun than the police. The number of guns manufactured in the U.S. has increased while numbers of homicides have decreased. More citizens, it, this is, this is a, a different trend, more citizens have now stopped someone with a gun than the police have. And then analysis of FBI crime statistics looks at counties with concealed carry and showed an 8.5% reduction in murder, a 5% reduction in rapes, a 7% reduction in assaults, and a 3% reduction in robberies. Now. To be fair, there could have been other factors involved in that. There could have been other factors involved in that. It might not just have been concealed carry. But when 57% of felons are saying that they're more afraid of a citizen with a firearm than a police officer with a firearm, that should tell you that whether or not their potential victim has a gun influences their decision. So if we're going to be honest about all of this, and this really is about saving lives, because that that should be the fundamental issue. It should be about saving lives. And one of the ways that I've found that we do this in a free society is by preserving individual liberty because that allows for individual choices. It's also by making sure that we're using law enforcement resources to go after people that are committing violent acts, not law enforcement resources, to go after people that aren't doing anything wrong. And that seems to be the, the number one driving factor behind a lot of this left-wing legislation against guns. At the same time that they want to have greater parole for violent offenders, they want to make it harder for a citizen to be able to have a firearm, at the same time that they want to actually reduce the police presence in those neighborhoods which are most affected by crime. You're telling me that's evidence-based? You're telling me that's what, following the science? So, I'm telling you right now, Joe Biden can sign whatever executive orders he wants. Um, there are a number of laws on the books in the United States that I think are at best inappropriate and at worst 
clear violations of government authority or constitutional rights. The one benefit that we have is that we do have a very deliberative legislative process. But if Joe Biden is going to come forward now and say that, well, you know what, Second Amendment's not absolute. Okay, Joe, neither is your executive order. Let me tell you what's not, let me tell you something else that's not absolute in a free society. Elected officials significantly diminishing individual liberty. That's not conducive to a free society, and it shouldn't be an absolute in a free society. And if the left was looking, if the left is looking for a potential issue where I am willing to say I'm not complying with this, they found it. They found it. Because I have been to foreign countries, I have seen what happens when you disarm people and you leave them at the mercy of criminal elements, of terrorist elements, of oppressive elements. One of the things I found fascinating was when we initially got into Iraq and they were searching houses, they would, they would confiscate firearms. We well, you know what we found out? We found out that the U.S. military and the Iraqi military couldn't be everywhere at every time. And so it became very, very easy for terrorists and criminal organizations to prey upon people, especially in remote areas. And so we changed strategy. We started to organize local groups. We started to make sure that each family could defend themselves. And you know what we found out? Is that when people had the means to defend themselves, they did. And the fact that they had them, the fact that they possessed the means to defend themselves, dissuaded terrorist and criminal organizations from coming in and attempting to exploit them. Because when they were unarmed and they were completely reliant on the government for their safety, they were an easy target. But when they had the means to defend themselves, oh, the game changed then. So this is not only a trade-off. And this conservatives, Second Amendment advocates, listen to me when I say this. This is not simply a trade-off between safety and liberty. Right? We make a, very, a lot of very good arguments with respect to the, the liberty and, then, and the point of the Second Amendment is to be able to protect your person, to be able to protect your property, and to be able to defend against tyranny and oppression. That is all true. And then the left comes back with, yeah, but we just want to save lives. Well, then it is time for us to make not only the argument for why individual liberty is important, but for why individual liberty actually creates an environment where you can do a better job of saving lives by not making people completely dependent on the government for their security and by empowering them to not only take responsibility, but to feel secure in their own person and their own ability to defend themselves and their family. So we want to save lives too. The difference is we believe we can do a better job saving lives by preserving your rights and freedoms. They think they can do a better job saving lives by eroding them. And the stats are in. It doesn't work. It doesn't work when you have a, a you know, benevolent government, theoretically like the UK or Australia or uh, UK or Australia. And it sure as hell doesn't work when you have a tyrannical government. Because the dirty little secret is this. The worst atrocities perpetuated through the use of firearms have not been by private citizens against other citizens. It's been by governments against unarmed populations. So who really wants to save lives while preserving liberty? All right. I want to thank you for joining us today. I, I Look, I hope these facts and figures help. I want to encourage you. There's a couple of websites I'm going to share with you right now where we, we got some of this data. 
Um, John Lott does a good job doing a lot of research. The Heritage Foundation uh, has done an excellent job with a, um, they actually have a map where you can look at all the different uh, individual uses where someone has used a firearm for a defensive purpose. Um, there's another uh, group called AmericanGunFacts.com. They go into a lot of the specifics and, and breakdowns about gun ownership, about gun laws, about the effects that they have. Um, and then obviously this, this report by 538 on gun dust and mass shootings. Um, you, know, you know, again, it's, it's not like these guys were trying to cook the books to prove gun control doesn't work. Uh, a lot of these studies were actually conducted by people that were very friendly toward gun legislation, but they're honest researchers. And they're people that actually believe that it, the best way to curb violence is to do things that work, not do things that sound good in a political soundbite. Right, so I really encourage you to, to look again. Heritage Foundation has a great survey on this, some interactive maps. Um, Gun Facts America, and then uh, 538. So once again, thank you for joining us on Making the Argument, and we will see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.